0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The discovery of a new species of algae in the Persian Gulf might offer a way to help coral reefs stressed by rising sea temperatures and pollution.
1: Coral reefs are by no way doomed, so corals try to fight back and they try to adjust to the changing environment and they have a higher capacity to do so than we had previously thought, but this will not be enough
0: also the quest for better ways to store renewable energy. Economies of scale are helping bring down prices on some types of batteries.
2: Before it was you know, on the order of 10 or 20x too expensive. Now it's starting to get to a price point where in certain instances it looks reasonable.
0: That story, chickadees, kinglets, downy woodpeckers and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Today we have some good news, as well as some bad and definitely ugly. And it all has to do with algae. Well, not quite, but we'll explain a bit later. So let's start with the good. And it's good news for coral reefs, which are in trouble in many spots around the world. Overfishing and pollution aren't helping, but the big challenge seems to be shifting water temperatures, which can drive out the algae that reefs depend on for food from photosynthesis, leaving the reefs unhealthy or dead and bleached a ghostly white. Now science has discovered a species of algae in the Persian Gulf that doesn't seem to mind high or low ocean temperatures. Jörg Wiedenmann of the University of Southampton was part of the team that made the discovery. Jörg, welcome to Living on Earth.
1: Hi there, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, first of all, why study corals in the Persian Gulf? What's unique about that region?
1: The Persian Gulf is actually a wonderful natural laboratory because the corals there are experiencing Temperatures which are predicted for other parts of the world for the next century. So, if we want to get a better idea what will be going on in other oceans, the Persian Gulf might be telling us already the future since the corals are experiencing the heat already there.
0: Now, why is it that warmer than average ocean temperatures typically are a problem for corals and result in bleaching?
1: So corals live together in a symbiotic relationship with this unicellular algae, and they depend on their algal symbionts because they provide them with valuable nutrients and food. However this uh, symbiotic relationship is very vulnerable and if temperatures exceed a certain threshold the algal uh, photosynthesis is not working properly anymore and they produce some toxic compounds which results then in a the breakdown of the symbiotic relationship and the algae are lost from the coral. So as a consequence, the white skeleton of the animal host, the coral, is shining through the tissue, and that gives these corals the bleached appearance, and that is actually a signal that they are severely stressed, they have lost their symbiotic partner, and as a consequence, they might actually die if they are not managing to recover their symbiotens again.
0: But you found this particular alga that can survive warm temperatures. Uh, at least greater temperature fluctuations than species known to be outside the Gulf. How is this algae able to do that?
1: At the moment, we don't know yet how they manage to do it. The only thing that we know now, and this is very exciting, that this is a very new type of algae. And obviously, this algae is doing something very different from the algae in other parts of the world. And our future research will hopefully find out what uh, the mechanism is by which they manage to survive these extreme temperatures. What's the
0: potential for this particular species of algae to live symbiotically with other coral species in other places, maybe places that are under stress because of warming ocean temperatures?
1: Well, the exciting finding about that is that corals obviously have more means to adjust to high temperature than we had previously thought. In the past, it was just one strain of algae which was made mostly responsible for thermal tolerance in corals. And now we suddenly know that there are even different species which could do that. So that means that the diversity of algae out there that could actually help corals to survive in extreme temperatures might be much bigger than we had previously thought. And when temperatures are rising in other parts of the ocean, these algae actually might take over and help the corals to become more temperature tolerant. However, um, while this gives hope that corals will adjust to the increasing temperatures of the future, One also needs to be realistic about that. And if we look at the Persian Gulf, so we find there about 68 coral species that can endure in these high temperature environments. And if you look in a more normal tropical environment in the the Indo-Pacific, in a hotspot of coral diversity, you would find about 600 species. So obviously there are limitations to the adaptation potential of corals to these extreme temperatures. It does not mean that uh, rising ocean temperatures are nothing bad for corals because they can acclimate to a certain extent.
0: In your work, what other stressors do you see besides heat that threaten coral reefs?
1: Water quality plays a crucial role for coral survival and our recent work has shown that, for example, uh, nutrient enrichment of waters uh, in which corals uh, recede can actually lower the temperature tolerance. The temperature threshold at which corals can start to bleach and start to suffer is actually lowered. So this is something very important because that also gives possibilities to really actively promote coral reefs who become more resilient towards temperature increases If we manage to get the water quality right in coral reefs, then they actually are more resilient towards temperature stress.
0: So Jörg, what's the message here? What's the message that this new finding sends us about the future of coral reefs?
1: So what we can see is that coral reefs are by no way doomed. So corals try to fight back and they try to adjust to the changing environment and they have a higher capacity to do so than we had previously thought. But the important message is that this will not be enough. We need to support coral reef ecosystems in their struggle to adjust to higher temperatures and reduce the pollution of the waters, to reduce overfishing, and to keep them in a natural and good health.
0: Jörg Wiedenmann is a professor of biological oceanography and head of the Coral Reef Laboratory at the University of Southampton. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today.
1: Thank you very much for talking. It was a great fun.
0: And now, algae's bad and ugly side, pond scum. It isn't just a summer nuisance. New international research led from Canada suggests that blue-green algal blooms are growing around the world and could threaten our health. Indeed, last August, authorities in Toledo, Ohio, banned residents from drinking their water due to excess levels of a toxin produced by algae in Lake Erie. And some scientists are suggesting an association of the increase in blue-green algae with diseases ranging from liver tumors to Alzheimer's and other neurological disorders. Zofia Taranyu is a biologist at the University of Montreal and the lead author of a new paper in Ecology Letters. Welcome to Living on Earth.
4: Thank you very much.
0: So first off, what is blue-green algae?
4: So blue-green algae, it's actually a bacteria that produces a blue-green pigment. More recently, we call them cyanobacteria.
0: Huh. So why did we think that they were algae?
4: Because they have a lot of the similar characteristics as algae or phytoplankton. But what differs is that they don't have membrane-bound organelles that would make them algae.
0: So you looked at this bacteria to see how it's doing around the world. Tell me about your study.
4: So the motivation behind our study was that there recently been an increased attention in the media and also people living around lakes, that there was possibly an increased occurrence of these blue-green algae or these cyanobacteria in lakes. But we didn't know whether or not it was a true increase or if people were just paying more attention. And there's also the suggestion that we, with global warming and changes to the land use, that we're creating these opportune conditions for an increase in cyanobacteria. And so our study was really motivated to try and quantify whether or not cyanobacteria are increasing over time.
0: And what did you find?
4: So we found that over the past 200 years, cyanobacteria have been increasing significantly and that the increase was accentuated or accelerated since approximately the 1950s. And this coincided with the changes in modern agriculture, so the application of fertilizers, and also coincided with increases in the global temperature.
0: Now, what do you suppose is causing this global rise all around the world in blue-green algae or actually it's bacteria?
4: Yeah. So what we found in our study, and it's been shown in lo- at local scales as well, is that the increase in fertilizer coming from the land into lakes is driving this increase. So cyanobacteria do really well when the concentration of phosphorus and nitrogen, these nutrients that we're applying on the land, are high. And they can outcompete phytoplankton during those conditions.
0: Yes, I'm thinking in the summer of 2014, uh, Toledo, Ohio had to stop drinking water from Lake Erie because of a bloom like this. What happened there?
4: That particular bay has a lot of agricultural land nearby, so there's more of a, a loading of nutrients that happened. And typically, cyanobacteria form these blooms or these scums on the surface water. And what happened in Lake Erie in 2014 was that there was strong winds that recirculated the blooms towards the bottom waters, which is where the filtration plants take their water supplies. And so basically there was these toxic blooms that made their way into the water supply.
0: So what are some of the impacts of cyanobacteria on our health?
4: Some of them, not all cyanobacteria produce toxins, but when they do bloom there's a higher occurrence of toxin being produced. And so in some cases, for example, there's been instances where livestock and pets that consume lake water that had blooms that were toxic died as a result. Typically, humans don't consume lake water that has blooms in them because it has a bad taste and odor problem. So there's no known reported death uh, for humans. But there's still that toxic effect. When we have indirect contact, we can have skin irritations or gastrointestinal discomforts. From swimming in the water and being in contact with the blooms. More long term effects could potentially be related to the fact that the most common cyanobacteria produce these liver toxins. So we can have liver tumors that could produce over a longer term scale, but this is still speculative. There's also been studies that have correlated whether or not residents live close to a lake and the occurrence of certain neurodegenerative diseases. This latter link is still uh, really controversial in the literature and something that I think we need to look into more closely in future years. The truth is we don't actually know if that link is present or not.
0: What kind of neurological disorders are
4: suspect? So some studies have linked it to ALS, for example, and they found that residents that live closer to lakes, there was a correlation or higher occurrence of ALS. But because it's a correlation, it doesn't imply causation. So there could be other factors, for example, living nearby agricultural fields that have fertilizer applications or being in a large city with other environmental issues that could be at play. So even though it's a correlation, we don't actually know if it's a cause.
0: So ALS, what other disorders?
4: There was one study, for example, in Guam and around 2003, that found a certain population that consumed bats that themselves consumed trees that had a symbiotic relationship that produced uh, cyanobacteria. And within these patients, they found symptoms that they said were descriptive of neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, so that the symptoms were comparable. And in the cerebral tissues of the patients that had died of these neurodegenerative diseases, they found what they call a bioamplification of the cyanobacteria protein. But to the best of my knowledge, that's the only known case of this amplification.
0: So what are the steps that you think we need to take to reduce the amount of the cyanobacteria in our waterways?
4: The two dominant factors that we found in our study, the most important one was the loading of nutrients from agricultural land or the concentration of nutrients in lakes. There's also climate warmings. I think climate warming is a bit of a harder issue to tackle, and people are trying to work on this continuously, the overuse of fertilizers in agricultural land is probably something that will be more easily tackled in future years because we're currently applying, phosph in about seventy percent of croplands across the world. We're applying phosphorus in excess of need, and so the quotas and the mitigation needs to be applied at that end, as we saw that as the primary driver of cyanobacteria.
0: Sophia Taranyu is a biologist at the University of Montreal. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Sophia.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Coming up, with renewable energy in the U.S. on the rise, some states are looking to slow down that growth. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Renewable energy is having its moment in the sun, accounting for about 40% of newly installed power in the U.S. in 2013. This growth is boosted by tax incentives and broad public support, yet backing at state government level is eroding. Some states that have required a certain percentage of electric power to come from green sources, so-called renewable portfolio standards, are looking to trim or even eliminate those mandates. Warren Leon is the executive director of the Clean Energy States Alliance, and he is with us now to explain the pushback. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Warren, what are renewable energy portfolio standards, and what's their function?
5: Renewable portfolio standards are a requirement that the electricity suppliers in the state get a certain share of their electricity from renewable energy. And the way they're normally set up is that. The amount of renewable electricity they need to get every year goes up slightly, and that drives the development of additional wind, solar, biomass, and other renewable energy facilities in this country.
0: And what states have those at this point?
5: There are 29 states plus the District of Columbia.
0: Walk me through the renewable portfolio standard of, well, any state of your choosing.
5: Well, it really varies. Every state does it differently. Some states allow different technologies in other states. In some cases, it's just restricted to the most typical renewable energy Sources, things like wind, solar, biomass. Some states include small hydro. Other states don't include small hydro. Some states include things like fuel cells. Other states don't include fuel cells. Some states allow things like combined heat and power. So it really varies from state to state.
0: Tell me the kind of difference that renewable portfolio standards have made in a place like California. How much less fossil fuel are they using there?
5: California, they have a very aggressive renewable portfolio standard, or RPS. By the year 2020, they have to get 33% of their electricity from renewable sources. So there would have been some renewable energy development anyway, but it's probably the case that 15% of electricity that may have come from fossil fuels is coming from renewables simply because of the existence of that RPS.
0: Now, as I understand it, a number of states are looking to roll back renewable portfolio standards. Why is there this resistance now to something that, well, obviously saves fossil fuel energy?
5: Well, we can't necessarily say states are trying to roll it back. The important thing to keep in mind is that renewables remain widely popular on a bipartisan basis in states across the country. Having said that, there are certain groups that would like to see the RPS rolled back, and they really have three motivations. One is it's fossil fuel interests that are trying to attack and weaken the competition. Secondly, although renewable energy development has economic benefits for the state, it does lead to slightly higher electricity costs, The cost for most states has been less than 2%, but it's still a a real increase. And third, there are some folks who have philosophical objections to any government policy that seems to be interfering with a completely free and open marketplace.
0: What about what happened in Ohio? 2014 saw legislation to uh, dump renewable portfolio standards. There. There.
5: Yes, there was a move in Ohio to eliminate or reduce the Renewable Portfolio Standard. And a lot of folks in the business community came out in support of the Renewable Portfolio Standard because they saw that renewable energy development was good for jobs and business growth in the state. And so what they ended up doing was putting it on hold for two years while they're going to study the situation. It's going to come up again. But the fact that it was not eliminated or completely rolled back shows that there are powerful public interests that still push for retaining it.
0: There are a number of states that this is under discussion. I think, what, Indiana, Illinois, Georgia, Texas and Oklahoma, Maryland... Kansas. As I understand it, their renewable portfolio standard is being challenged in the legislature this year. It comes up year after year. What happens in these debates, and why does repeal of renewable portfolio standards seem to lose every time in Kansas, at least so far?
5: Well, what's happened in Kansas is there's strong bipartisan support for renewable energy development. There are some folks who want to get rid of it, so it's a battle, and There'll certainly be efforts again this year to roll it back in Kansas, and we'll have to see. On the other hand, we need to keep in mind at the same time that there are states like Kansas where there are going to be efforts to roll back the RPS, there are going to be other states like Maryland and Illinois and Michigan where there will be efforts to strengthen their RPS this year. And there's going to be a strong effort that's underway in the state of Vermont to establish a renewable portfolio standard for the first time. So things move in both directions, and it's a complicated situation. How does today's climate and enthusiasm for it compare to past years? In some ways, the fact that renewable energy is politically contentious now is in part of result of its success 20 years ago nobody was opposing the development of renewable energy because fossil fuel interests and those who in theory didn't like renewable energy all that much didn't see it as much threat they didn't see that it had the potential to significantly reduce the use of fossil fuels so What's happened now is uh, renewable energy, the cost has come down, the share of the electricity that comes from renewables has gone up enough that it's now a serious uh, force in the energy landscape, and it's going to continue to increase if current trends continue. Look into your crystal ball 30 years from today, which
0: is kind of the lifetime of a power plant. What do you think the percentage of renewable energy will be at that point?
5: The use of renewable energy is clearly increasing in states across the country. 30 years from now, it will be well over half. I'm optimistic. The technologies are getting better. Their cost is coming down. The reality of climate change is going to become ever more apparent, and I have faith in the public in this country, and even in the policymakers, that they will take actions that will transform our electricity system and make it cleaner and more renewable. Warren Leon is executive director of the Clean Energy States Alliance. Thanks so much for
0: taking the time with us today. Thank you. Solar energy is booming in America, with 100% growth last year at the utility scale, but like the wind... It is not a constant or always predictable supplier of power. So along with the solar revolution, there is an energy storage revolution underway, though it is lagging well behind the growth in renewables. Some folks are trying to invent new forms of storage, including batteries. But there are also enterprises that are tweaking existing technology in ways to make renewables more viable alternatives to the always available nuclear, gas, and coal-fired power plants. The Allegheny Front's Cara Holzapel visited one such firm in Pittsburgh.
6: Ted Wiley doesn't look like your typical company vice president. He's young and wearing a casual blue sweater. We're at Aquion Energy's small test facility warehouse near a river in Pittsburgh. Wiley puts on clear safety glasses and leads me down a ramp and into a room that houses the rotary dial press.
2: It's a 10-ton press, and we use it to press the, the powders that we make one of the electrodes in our battery with.
6: The machine isn't really high-tech. Similar models press powder into aspirin. This one spits out black pellets.
2: Kind of like one of the sides of an Oreo cookie.
6: With each thump, another electrode is born. That's where energy is stored in the batteries the company produces in their actual factory in a nearby county. So the equipment is ordinary, even the basic battery technology is like any rechargeable battery, like the one in your phone. But those are mostly lithium-ion batteries. They've been around for decades, but Wiley says they used to be too expensive for common usage. That changed when handheld devices became popular in the early 2000s. Production ramped up and prices dropped. Wiley says that's when the batteries became feasible for larger-scale energy storage. And that's been a game-changer for renewables like solar.
2: Before, it was, you know, on the order of 10 or 20x, too expensive. Now it's starting to get to a price point where, in certain instances, it looks reasonable.
6: Especially in places like California, where solar is a bigger part of the energy mix. And there's just more interest in storing power from the sun. The rush for better lithium-ion batteries has benefited newer technology companies like Aquion. Wiley says Aquion has taken battery technology a step further. Their components are more environmentally friendly. It's a water-based battery, and less expensive to produce than more traditional batteries. Even in Pennsylvania, where there's plentiful and cheap natural gas and coal, and less sun, there's interest in renewable energy storage. It means solar and wind power can be used as backup, for example, during outages, and with a cleaner carbon footprint. I like to say energy storage is the bacon of the grid because it makes everything better. Catherine Hamilton is with 38 North Solutions, a clean energy consulting firm in Washington, D.C., she says energy storage is so delicious because it helps make the grid more efficient and reliable. Solar panels capture the energy, and batteries hold to it until it's needed. Hamilton says the federal government helped create a market for renewable storage a couple of years ago. It allowed for compensation of any system that helps the grid in times of need, like during extreme cold or heat when people are using more energy. But Pennsylvania's leading environmental group says the push for solar storage puts the cart before the horse. Penn Futures' Evan Endress says solar energy currently comprises less than 1% of the state's energy.
2: The discussion really needs to be about how we get renewable energy on the system that we have right now.
6: Endres says when Pennsylvania reaches 12 or 15% solar, and that's going to take some doing, then it makes sense to get more excited about storage. Pittsburgh-based Aquion admits its customer base is currently in sunnier places, like the Caribbean, but they expect other regions will warm up to solar storage in the near future. I'm Carol Holsoppel.
0: Carl Holsoppel is with the public radio program, The Allegheny Front. Time for our weekly trip beyond the headlines. Peter Dykstra has been exploring that universe. He's with the dailyclimate.org and environmental health news, that's EHN.org. He's on the line from Conyers, Georgia now. Hello, Peter. What was remarkable this week?
7: Well, hi, Steve. Two of the easiest targets for political humor in this country are lawyers and New Jersey.
0: Ah, so I take it we're going back to your ancestral home, huh?
7: Briefly, as the latest example of how difficult it is to pursue environmental lawsuits, particularly if the defendant has deep pockets. In a lawsuit filed 11 years ago, the state of New Jersey sought 8.8 Nine billion dollars from exxon mobil for wetlands destruction and contamination around the bayway refinery just south of newark airport that's just by the section of the new jersey turnpike where you have to roll the windows up
0: oh yeah that really stank down there that was the stuff of legend
7: well exxon no longer owns the bayway refinery but a judge has already ruled that the company is liable all that remained in the case was for the court to decide whether Exxon owed the full $8.9 billion. But New Jersey abruptly settled with Exxon, taking the decision out of the judge's hands, and they settled for $250 million, about three cents in the dollar.
0: Yeah, so no one ever got near Exxon's deep, deep pockets, huh?
7: Correct, and the state has also given itself the right to use most of that smaller settlement, not an environmental cleanup, but however it sees fit. As of last year, there's a budget provision saying New Jersey can divert anything over $50 million from an environmental lawsuit to things like plugging holes elsewhere in the state budget. And they did exactly that with a recent $190 million settlement over contamination in the Passaic River. Want a couple of other shining examples of failure in environmental litigation? Go
0: ahead, sure.
7: In 2003, Monsanto agreed to a $600 million settlement for PCB contamination in Anniston, Alabama. Lawyers with no PCB exposure got 39% of the money, including the late and legendary Johnny Cochran, whose law firm pulled down $40 million. Those PCB-exposed victims represented by Cochran got an average of $9,000 from the settlement. And after the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill Victims waited over two decades for compensation. One-sixth of them had died before the checks were mailed. And, of course, the 2010 BP spill in the Gulf of Mexico is still playing out in both civil and criminal court.
0: And I imagine those checks will be a long time coming in the mail. What's next?
7: Investigative environmental reporting and a viral video in China. Chai Jing is a former news anchor who produced Under the Dome, a documentary on the sources and consequences of China's massive pollution problems. She went into her own pockets to fund the production, and it managed to both escape censorship and draw 100 million online views in its first 72 hours. Can you imagine getting millions of viewers on an environmental video here?
0: No, I can't. And do you think this could be the same kind of wake-up call for China that Rachel Carson's Silent Spring about the environmental effects of pesticides was for America?
7: Well, we'll see. But the Chinese government may or may not fully block the video. At the time we record this, they've only taken the step of discouraging further reporting on it. But 100 million viewers means it's already out of the bag.
0: Yeah, and people here can link to the Chinese pollution video and all our news at our website, LOE.org. And what's on the history calendar this week?
7: I've got a weird one for you.
0: And that's unusual, Peter.
7: Whatever. The pipistrelle is a bat species found in Scotland, but for years no one could figure out where these tiny winged mammals hang out. But in 2008, 7 years ago this week, a shocking discovery by our radio friends at the BBC. One of the favorite roosts for the pipistrelle is Dune Castle, built in the 13th century, restored in the 1880s, and in 1975 briefly occupied by John Cleese in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, as he and other French soldiers hurled insults at King Arthur. So, the Pipistrelle and Monty Python share the same habitat? Well, they did at least briefly, but Dune Castle has become a tourist attraction for four different reasons. Bat lovers, history buffs, scientists, and Monty Python fans. Years earlier, the castle was used in the movie Ivanhoe, and recently, it was a TV backdrop for Game of Thrones.
0: But not for Batman.
7: Well, there have only been seven Batman movies so far, so give it time.
0: Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Talk to you soon, Peter.
7: All right. Thanks a lot, Steve. We'll talk to you soon. Same bat time, same bat channel.
0: Just ahead, the promise and problems of a new canal to link the Atlantic and Pacific. That's coming up on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from
3: United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's
0: Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Even where winter still holds its grip, longer days and the first day of spring in less than two weeks promise that warmer days and the growing season will finally arrive. And then there's the promise we can find in flocks of wild birds. Here's Mary McCann with today's Bird
8: Note. Take a walk in a temperate woodland this month and you might hear this chorus. A closer look and listen reveal that this foraging flock includes several species of birds, chickadees, kinglets, and even a downy woodpecker. Many bird species eat alone, So you might wonder why these birds have chosen to dine together. Different species flocking together to find food, called commensal feeding, mutually enhances success. One species assists the foraging of others. For example, in chickadee and woodpecker flocks, the woodpecker pecks off bark and moss, exposing grubs for its own consumption. But the pecking also stirs up flying insects that the chickadees swoop in to snatch. The relationship also helps the woodpecker because the extra eyes of the chickadees are on the lookout for predators. The watchdog chickadees alert the close-focused woodpecker when there's danger. Because these birds, foraging together, don't seek the same foods, the result is cooperative or commensal rather than competitive feeding. I'm Mary McCann.
0: To find photos and more, walk on over to our website it's L-O-E dot The Panama Canal is the only route through the American continent for cargo ships, but that could soon change as Chinese businessmen have been granted a concession by the Nicaraguan government to construct a competing canal through the small Central American country, crossing the mighty Lake Nicaragua in the process. But the idea to build a canal through Nicaragua is not new.
9: The first people that suggested about this canal, they needed the connection between the Caribbean and the Pacific, were the Spanish. That was, you know, 500 years ago. But then we've had other world powers very interested in that, including the English, you know, Holland, Belgium, even Napoleon had an interest in this canal.
0: That's Professor Jorge Huete Perez, director of the Molecular Biology Center at the University of Central America in Managua, Nicaragua. Professor Huete says information about the Chinese company running this project is hard to come by.
9: We don't know much about this company. What we know is that they don't have much experience in terms of construction. So it came as a surprise knowing that the Nicaraguan government has decided to give them a concession for 100 years. The concession is actually not just for the canal construction, but it's a big combo. There are about eight projects, different projects, and all of them are really large infrastructure projects. It includes projects that don't seem related to a wet canal, such as infrastructure for tourism. And it's also difficult for us to analyze because there hasn't been much public information about all of these projects.
0: Professor Huete, how far along are we in this process? Have they broken ground?
9: Well, they started the project last December. You know, it was a grandiose celebration. But, you know, what they've done is mostly that big opening. You know, as a matter of fact, all they have is like 20 people widening a road that they need, you know, to get to the ports. So it was more like a propaganda thing that they did last December. However, what people are saying is that, you know, this is a big symbol because what they want to tell us is that they're going to go ahead with the project in spite of them not having any environmental or social studies performed or finished. And people are very concerned because there's not much information, there's not transparency, and there's not public debate regarding all these issues.
0: Now, please describe the route of the canal that's being proposed. Where would this be built and how big would it be?
9: So, you know, it's a very large project, it's about three times as large as the Panama Canal. You know, if we go looking at the map from the Pacific all the way to the Caribbean, it's about 20 kilometers between the Pacific Ocean and the lake. Then you go through the lake, about 100 kilometers, and then you come out at the center of the country, and then you have to find a way to get to the Caribbean. The problem we find there is that you have to go and break through very important world-recognized wetlands, and uh, you have to go also through two very special forests in the Caribbean. And there's no way they can avoid those forests, so they're going to have to break through, and that's a very serious concern.
0: What are your concerns from an environmental perspective? What's at stake here?
9: Well, Nicaragua is a very wealthy country in terms of biodiversity. We have around seven to eight percent of the world biodiversity in Nicaragua. There are more than 70 different ecosystems. Just in the lake, we have more than five different ecosystems in that mass of water. So you know, in terms of conservation, you know, Nicaragua is a very important place. And you have to remember that Nicaragua is also a very important point for the Mesoamerican Biological Corridor, which is a corridor set to conserve the biodiversity of the area. Now, as you can imagine, you know, by building this canal, the construction itself is going to produce a lot of damage in the lake and all the other areas where it's going to go through. Regarding the forest, we have calculated that at least 20 to 25 different species that are uh, threatened species will be affected by the construction of this canal.
0: Now, what about Lake Nicaragua itself? Uh, It's, what, one of the largest lakes in the western hemisphere. How concerned are you about water pollution?
9: Uh, What scientists are thinking is that this is very important for the future you know so far people drink from that water they use it you know for households people use the lake for fishing especially the small poor communities around the lake but you know it's a huge mass of water it's more than 8000 square kilometers this lake is as big as El Salvador in Central America so This lake is very important for the future. Nicaragua is one of the countries most affected by climate change. You know, there's long periods of droughts in this country. And people know that for the future, this is going to be very important for drinking water.
0: What about the impact of the canal on people? How will it affect any of the indigenous people who live in that area?
9: Right. There's going to be plenty of people that are going to have to be displaced from those areas. The Humboldt Center in Nicaragua is a very important research center in Central America, has calculated that at least 30,000, but they go up all the way to 100,000 people, that will probably be displaced by this canal. The government, you know, plays down this number, and they think that it's going to be more like seven to 10,000 people. But, you know, what we need to say about this is that there are very important indigenous populations in these areas, and this brings us to the legality of this canal. You know, there has been 39 different legal complaints to the Supreme Court regarding this canal, and one of those complaints is from the indigenous communities, because according to the Constitution of Nicaragua those lands you know are autonomous lands they're very important for these communities that's the way they live you cannot touch that land you cannot rent it you cannot buy it so how come you know they're preparing to do this canal without even consulting these communities I have said before that I consider this project absolutely racist It's a way of looking at this area they come and tell you you're gonna to have to be displaced. And, you know, you're going to have a better life because we, the people in the Pacific area, decided that you're better off, you know, with a different life and we need the canal. You know, I, I really think we should be paying attention to this from the point of view of human rights.
0: Now, the Nicaraguan government is saying this project is going to help lift their country out of poverty. What do you think about that?
9: Right. Well, you know, those are the selling points that they have. One has to remember that Nicaragua is one of the poorest countries in the hemisphere, and there is unemployment problems, very serious. You know, people are half-employed, self-employed. So when you bring a project like this, you know, it has all the elements to be a very popular project, because they claim that it's going to eradicate poverty in Nicaragua, everybody's going to have jobs, and everybody's going to be rich overnight. But this might be an economic project and a financial project, but it's not at all a sustainable development project. It's not scientifically sound. It's not sustainable at all.
0: Jorge, what do you think China's goals are here?
9: You know, that's not my area of expertise, but I'll tell you what I think. A lot of the experts that are talking about these issues They think that there are geostrategic implications that are favorable, you know, for China, for them to have a major influence in the Americas. Now, one of the things that is really concerning is the way they're pushing this project doesn't seem like they care much about the environment. Uh, It doesn't seem like they care much about human rights. You know, and that's serious concern. You have Chinese people coming into your land with armed escorts from the army, getting into different places and saying, you know, this is going to be for the canal, we need this property. And it's very, very scary for indigenous people in Nicaragua.
0: So, Professor, at the end of the day, where do you see this thing headed?
9: Well, the plan that the government has announced, and the Chinese planners as well have talked about, is that somewhere in April or May, they're going to start displacing people, That's not going to go that easy because people will be protesting and I don't think people are willing to give their lands to the Chinese companies that are running the project. Last December, when this project was open, there were people that were protesting and the government responded with the police, with the army, they militarized some of the areas, they put people in jail. So the scientific community, what we're thinking is that we would like the international community to get involved in analyzing from the point of view of the environment, you know, from the point of view of human rights, all these issues, and trying to offer help to Nicaragua so that if the project goes ahead, its difficulties are mitigated properly.
0: Jorge Huete Perez is the director of the Molecular Biology Center at the University of Central America. Thanks so much for joining us.
9: Thank you so much, Steve.
0: We tried repeatedly to get comment from the government of Nicaragua through its embassy in Washington, but our calls and emails went unanswered. Time now to hear from you, our listeners. One of our recent stories elicited a lively exchange. It was an interview with Lawrence Orsini, founder of Project Exergy, a company that's investigating capturing waste heat from computing to heat homes a lot of you apparently were confused or even thought we had the science wrong including john f williams who wrote that our interview failed to display quote a basic understanding of the science fundamentals and thus came across as magic disguised as science and frank gould wrote of course it makes sense to capture the electrical energy consumed and converted to heat by computers or any other electrical device before it is dissipated But there is such a thing as conservation of energy. Computers are not going to magically produce more energy than they consume. So Lawrence Orsini responded directly to Frank. You are right, he wrote, that the conservation of energy law cannot be broken and what we are proposing does not attempt. Instead of running computers just to create heat... Our concept is to perform beneficial computation, computation that the house, building, and the world are already using in rapidly increasing quantities. We are hoping to move existing electric consumption associated with computation happening in data centers to buildings that are consuming energy today just to make heat. This computation-generated heat can displace energy that the building would otherwise use for one purpose, heat, and instead provide heat and computation for less energy than data centers are using today. Orsini's colleague John Lillick asserts that there is enough waste heat generated in U.S. data centers to heat two-thirds of the homes in America. He adds that data centers are using a significant portion of the energy they consume to remove heat from the servers using large cooling systems. The heat we will generate is removed from the computer by serving an existing heat load, so the inefficiency of removing heat from the computing system with air conditioners and chillers is eliminated in our model. And what about the summer? Orsini says the same principles behind the technology that is used in propane refrigerators can be used to power air conditioning from waste heat. So, it's not magic, it's physics. And we have had good instruction in the laws of thermodynamics— Thanks to the British duo Michael Flanders and Donald Swan. The first law of thermodynamics, heat is work and work is heat.
1: Heat is work and work is heat. Very good. The second law of thermodynamics, heat cannot of itself pass from one
0: body to a hotter body.
9: Heat cannot of itself pass from one body to a hotter body. Heat won't
1: pass from a cooler to a hotter. Heat won't pass from a cooler to a hotter. You can try it if you like, but you far better not. A. You can try it if you like, but you far better not. Because the, the, the cold in the cooler will get hotter as a ruler. Because the hotter body's heat will pass to the cooler. Because the hotter body's heat will we'll pass to as the cooler. The heat is work, and work is heat, and work is heat, and heat is work. Heat will
5: Heat will pass by conduction. Heat will pass by convection. Heat will pass by convection. Heat will pass by radiation.
7: Heat will pass by radiation. And, by radiation. and, and that's a physical law. Heat is work and work's a curse. And all the heat in the universe is gonna cool
0: down. Because it can't increase. Then there'll be no more work and there'll be perfect peace. Really? Yeah, that's entropy, man. <laughs> <laughs> all because of the second law of thermodynamics, which lays down that you can't pass heat from a cooler to a hotter. Try oh. it if you like, you're far better. Oh. Cause oh. the cold oh. in the cooler oh. will get hotter oh. as a ruler, Cause the oh. hotter body's
3: heat oh. will pass
0: to
1: the whole Oh, you can't oh. pass, oh. pass heat from a cooler to a oh. hotter. You yeah. try it if you like, oh. but you're only a fool. Cause the cold in the, cold the cooler will get hotter as a rule. That's a simple law.
9: What? That's because you've been working. Oh,
7: Beatles nothing. (laughs)
1: That's the first and second law of thermodynamics.
0: That's Michael Flanders with Donald Swan at the piano, explaining the laws of thermodynamics back in 1964. And remember, your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. And our email address is comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, Lauren Hinkle, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and John Duff. Our show is engineered by Tom Tiger with help from Jake Rigo and Noel Flatt. Alison learish composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, it's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth.
3: I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International